Though we saw that in Micah chapter 1, anybody remember what we called that, that type of oracle? The first oracle there in chapter 1? I don't know if I mentioned it real clearly. It's, it's a Reeve oracle. And chapter 6 will be another uh, Reeve oracle. The Reeve oracle uh, is, is the way it goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. When in Deuteronomy chapter 32, when Moses, remember he concluded giving them the law, then he had the blessings and cursings of the law. And when he got to chapter 32, what we call the Song of Moses, uh, he called all heavens and earth to witness to the covenant that God was making with Israel. That's kind of interesting. Now this, this covenant, because it's between God, it's not a covenant between man and man, which is witnessed to by men usually, right? Today, we, we, we sign treaties and covenants, you know, it's witnessed to by somebody. But this, this one's between God and man. And so, so it, it is the witnesses, or the, the heavens, which I think would include the, the atmospheric heavens, as well as probably the angels, and earth or called to, to bear witness. I mean, it's, it's very solemn, <laughs> isn't it? When, you, when little, the people of Israel are looking and God says, I call all heaven and earth to witness. Well, we, we saw he, he did that in, uh, in chapter 1, there in verse 2. But turn over to uh, chapter 6, and you see that uh, here again, uh, he let the hills hear your voice and the mountains the Lord's complaint in verse 1 and 2. So this idea, arise, plead your case before the mountains, let the hills hear your voice. Let them, the Lord has a complaint against His people. That's what the Reeve oracle, it, the, uh, the word Reeve is the, is the Hebrew word, and it translates the idea of accusation or complaint. All right? So in other words, he is calling his people to account, right? He's saying, look, we have a covenant relationship. In that covenant, God says, I have responsibilities and you have responsibilities, right? I'm talking about the Mosaic covenant. It was a bilateral covenant. It wasn't a unilateral covenant like the Abrahamic covenant where all the responsibilities were in God and Abraham just had to believe God, right? The Mosaic Covenant was bilateral. That means two. That means there was responsibilities that God had and there was responsibilities that man had. Right? And so when Israel as a nation drifted apart, we're talking about nationally as a nation now, the individuals, the remnant, always stayed loyal to the Lord. But nationally, they drifted apart from God. And so God at different periods in their history called them to account. Deuteronomy 32 said He would do that. Moses told them they would do that. And the person that was primarily responsible for doing that would be the prophet, the role or the office of prophet. Okay? You have the king, the priest, and the prophet. Those are the three offices that are all of them together in our Lord. But the king had responsibilities mainly in the civil area and the priest in the religious area and the prophet was used by God to bring the word of God. Alright, so that's what each of these prophets are doing, including Micah. He's calling the people to account for their drifting away and he's urging them, therefore, to come back. Right? And that's the call to repentance. Repentance means change your mind, change your direction and come back to the Lord. Right? So we saw that in chapter 1. In chapter 2, what I'd like to look at tonight is in chapter 2 and 3 which are part of, you can see that chapter 2 begins with a woe oracle, right? You see the word woe? And there will be another woe oracle we won't look at tonight, beginning in chapter 6. You may want to turn there and see it, just to focus chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, through chapter 7, verse 7, would be the next woe oracle. The woe occurs in chapter 7, verse 1, so it doesn't occur right at the beginning of this section, but it also is a woe oracle as well, alright? And it parallels the one in chapter 2 and 3. So in chapter 2 and 3, he at the woe oracle identifies the reasons, the cause for the discipline or the judgment that he's about to bring. He announced the judgment in chapter 1, right? 
through the Reeve or Doom Oracle. And, and then, and he's, of course, the, when God gives a warning to his people like that, what is, what is he hoping they will do? Repent and change. And if they change, he will relent and not bring the disaster that he's saying that might come, right? He's hoping. Oh, we got. I'm going to move around a little bit. There's people back here. I don't want to have. Hi, hi. I don't want to have my back to you. <clears throat> I didn't know there was a back door, and I didn't even see him come in. <clears throat> um, and so the Lord is is wanting them by identifying, and this is important for us. We were talking about it a few of the brothers uh, and I last night. You know that reading these prophets, talking about all 17 of them, right? The five major prophet books and then the twelve minor prophets. That's the, it's the largest section in the Old Testament that we have and it's the largest section of Revelation we have in the entire Bible. Right? And so it isn't a section we can afford to ignore. If God addresses one brother with saying, yeah, like the book of Jeremiah, there are hard things to read there. You know, in Jeremiah, 52 chapters. And he said, you know, man, I read that and I get all beat up. And I said, well, I do too, brother. But, but we need that. See? We need it as much as Israel needs it. But we always have to be careful now because we are in the church. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. And so we're not... With those responsibilities that, that Israel was held accountable for were in a particular covenant relationship they had with God. But there are principles there that are timeless, right? And those are what we want to see as we study. We, I tried to do that with chapter 1 when we were looking at it. We're going to try to do that now with chapter 2 and 3. There are principles here that apply to us, and that's what we want to see because we too can really grow spiritually. I'm telling you, if you spend time in the prophets on a regular basis, you'll, there'll be one of two things that'll happen you will either grow spiritually phenomenally or you'll get really bitter and hardened against God. One of the two, right? Depending on how we respond. But if we have a soft heart, if we're teachable, that the, the prophetic books can really awaken us and stir us. A lot of the great revivals that have happened in the history of the church have come from scriptures that were in the prophetic books. So that's one of the reasons why we wanted to, to study Micah. So, in chapter 2, the first five verses, he identifies one of the problems that has caused this departure from God. Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. Now he's going to describe the, the land barons. These are going to be the, the, the nobility class that kind of developed in Israel. It wasn't supposed to be like that, but it gradually developed where certain ones of the farmers that were prosperous, that had you know good years of farming, became wealthy and started to buy the land of the smaller farmers that weren't doing so good. Now, under the Old Covenant, was it possible for any... Should there have been any poor people in the land of Israel under the Old Covenant? There should have been. Good, Bob. Right? And that's based on the blessings and cursings of the law, right? If they were obedient to the Lord, the Lord said that He would prosper them, that their fields would always bear, that their herds would always bear, that their family would be... There would be no... Uh, wombs that would be go barren or anything. That was all part of the blessings of the law. But it was contingent on their obedience, right? And likewise, the cursings of the law would occur if they got away from God, but always as a wake-up call to bring them back to God. That's what the cursings were for, to bring them back to God. <clears throat> so these wealthy land barons began to exploit the smaller Farmers, the farmers that maybe weren't as, you know, I mean, if somebody was lazy, Proverbs talks about that, right? He went by the field of the lazy man and it was all overgrown with weeds and thorns. It didn't need to be like that. But he was, he was always in his bed sleeping when he should have been out there working, see? Working is part of the responsibility of man, part of the curse in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? 
but it was even there before that right Adam was to till the fruit of the ground he was to work work is a part and we will be working in our glorified bodies too praise God I like that uh, God wants his people to be busy that's what he, what he made us to be and so some of the people weren't taking care of their property each family got an inheritance right remember in the division of the property under Joshua when, when, they con, when they went into the conquest of the land and they divided by lot the inheritance and they had, every tribe got an inheritance and then every clan and every tribe and then every family got a piece of land that was their inheritance under the covenant right and so that was where, how they were to feed themselves and take care of their families. And when a wealthier person came in and, and bought the land of somebody that wasn't doing so well, what would happen eventually to that land? Do anybody remember what the law said about that? Would it stay in the possession of that wealthy person forever? Jubilee. Right, the year of Jubilee, the, the, the debts were resolved and, and, and it was to go back to the original owner. Why did God do that? Restoration. Sorry? Restoration. Restoration, expand on that, Tim, that's right. But uh, restoration in what sense? That well, his people were not to be indebted or servants forever. There was a, there was a time, there was a, you know, uh, so... And also to, to maintain that hope, you know, to so people Good. can fall into despair. Yeah. Uh, you know, you may come upon hard times, so that, that portion of land was sold to get you through the hard time, but you always had the hope. While that person is prospering with your land, is paying off your debt, in a sense, you know, the land is encumbered, you're not. That's right. Then one day the land is restored to you, and not only are you no longer encumbered by your portion being covered, but it's restored to you, becomes profitable to you once again as well. That's right. And so it protects the inheritance <clears throat> that God gave each family. That's important to God. What's the spiritual or the application we see now under the new covenant for us in the church? What's the inheritance? Is there inheritance for God's people now in the church? Yes. Well, there's an inheritance in heaven, but is there an inheritance on earth? Oh, that's good. Y'all aren't as familiar with that. Ephesians chapter 4. See, this is very important. And that's, that's what, this is what I would see, verses 1 through 5, is the application for us today in the church. Every believer is given what? A spiritual gift. That is part of your inheritance. It was, did you earn it? Did you request it? It was given to you by choice of Christ through the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 4. And every believer has a spiritual gift. And we as a group of believers are responsible before Christ to see to it that everyone gets <clears throat> learns what their spiritual gift is and gets opportunity to utilize it, gets encouraged in that gift. Paul calls it, calls it the edification of the body, the building up of the body, so that every part of the body is important, right? So that's one of the things we see here. But the uh, <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 1, look at the, what was happening, what the Lord brings out. You remember in Proverbs 23, 7, it says that as a man thinks in his head, so he is. Right? That's a standing... There's some chairs over here, Roger. Come on through. <clears throat> that's all right. Yeah, glad you're here. Um, that is a standing principle still today. That um, that as a man or woman thinks, so you become. So, you know the old expression, you are what you think about? And that's why it's so important that we guard our minds on what we think about. Because whatever, if you stop and think about right now, what you think about the most in a given day and some of us are so busy we don't take time to do this, but you have to get quiet with the Lord and, and do some self-examination and find out. But whatever, if we're, you know, garbage in, garbage out, right? 
whatever we think about, we are going to, that we are molding ourselves like that, whether we want to, whether we realize it or not. That is a, an axiom. That's a principle of life that will happen, and that's why Paul says in Romans twelve two that we're to be doing what with our minds renewing them. That's in the present continuous tense. We're to be always renewing our minds. And what is it that he tells us in that verse that God uses to renew our minds? The Word. The Word of God. You realize that? And so we encourage fellow Christians, encourage young people to be consistently, regularly in the Word of God. That's one of the reasons why. We're not just wanting to create some sort of religious class of people or something, right? That we can boast about quoting Scripture or memorizing Scripture. It is so serious that it means it's our mind. It's what we think about. It's our spiritual productivity. It's our use of our inheritance that Christ has bestowed upon us as a stewardship. And He's going to hold us accountable too, right? The judgment seat of Christ. You're going to say, Malcolm, I gave you... He may give you more than one gift. I gave you this gift... What did you do with it? You know, that's the parable of the uh, minas there in Luke 19. Parable of the talents in, in Matthew 24. A little bit different situation there, but similar principle, the accountability. So there's accountability then. For yeah, our, yeah. The, every one of us, right? Every one of us. Accountable for the gifts that God has given us. That's right. And we're supposed to... That's basic biblical discipleship 101. In a local assembly, we are supposed to be teaching that to the people because Christians that come into the family don't know that. They don't know that. They, you know, they're, they're growing and learning what the Bible teaches. But that is basic. And, of course, the elders are held to the highest account for making sure that happens, right? Because they're the ones that are there in a local assembly. And they're the ones that Christ is using to lead His as under-shepherds, his local flock, right? So this is so important to see. And But these land barons then were, in a greedy way, stealing the inheritance of their brethren by... And, and you want to get an example of what chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, it, it almost jumps out at you as you read these verses if, you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament. Anybody remember the story of Naboth? Who can recount that story? Anybody? Yeah. Go ahead. Were you going to, you want to tell it? I think Tim was going to do it. You wanted to land, right? Yeah. Who, who was the king? Yeah. <laughs> Remember, we saw this. The king was Jezebel, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jezebel was the wife, but she, she wore the pants, right? That's right. That's what he means. <laughs> But, but look, remember we looked in chapter 6, verse 16? For that statutes of Omri are kept and all the works of Ahab's house are done. That is a huge flag because here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he describes them stealing the other inheritance and that is a work of Ahab's house. We have the, the story there in Kings of how Naboth had a vineyard. It was his by allotment going all in his family line all the way back to Joshua, right? And Ahab, it's right next to his palace. It's convenient for him. And Ahab, you know, he starts wimping and, 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 and mourning over the fact, you know, that it's convenient to my palace. And I wanted to switch properties. I would give him this other land way over here if he would give me this. It, and who knows, given Ahab, it probably wasn't an even swap. But even if it was... In Israel, you weren't allowed to do that. Remember the, in the law, you're not to move the boundaries marker of an inheritance because you're stealing your brother's inheritance even when you move a boundary stone. You know, in Texas, we put up fences. <laughs> right? Steve, people that come to Houston, they say, man, y'all, every, every little house has got a wooden fence around it. It's like y'all are staking up. And I said, yeah, man, we put fences <laughs> But out, but out in the in the uh, outskirts of Houston, where the cattle are, they put up fences because the farmer next door says, "Hey, I'm growing grass here from my cattle. Don't let your cattle cross over here, because you're eating hay from my cattle." You know, you respect one another's property. Well, that's in a in a civil moral sense we understand that, but in the biblical sense, Israel was unique in that way. Naboth had that, and and so of course Jezebel who is not a woman of God by any standard. She was a descendant 
of a priest of Baal up in Phoenicia. I mean, that she was uh, the most wicked person you could ever imagine Ahab could marry. He marries, and maybe she was pretty. I mean, it talks about how she painted up her face. She was known for wearing uh, makeup and painting herself up, even when she got older, when she was trying to deceive Jehu. And so she said, don't worry about it, honey. I'll take care of it. And it's a real wicked scheme that she comes up with, isn't it? She says she falsely accuses Naboth of treason and has the townspeople stone him to death. But even if he's dead, if he's dead, his property is supposed to go to his descendants, but they she confiscates the property. And that's that. Well, God let that happen too, didn't he? I mean, that's one of the ones, you know, I say, Lord, why would it, you know, Naboth, what did Naboth do to deserve this kind of a thing, right? But God lets these things happen sometimes. And uh, and of course, it was bringing huge judgment upon Ahab's house, and uh, ultimately, you know, Jezebel got eaten by the dogs, as the uh, prophecy was. You know, God was not pleased with that. So, going back to chapter two, let's read verses one through five. Woe to those who divide iniquity and work out evil on their beds. These men were so evil in their thinking that when they slept at night. They're sitting there and they're laying there scheming how they're going to trick somebody out of evil things. Now, beloved, I know we shake our heads, but we've all done this. We all have just as wicked a heart as these men did in the flesh I'm talking about, right? So there's a huge lesson for us in this. What are we thinking about? You know, if we're thinking about, you know, so-and-so at work, you know, did this to me, I'm going to make sure I get him back. That is thinking, scheming, iniquity on our beds. And God sees it. We don't know. We're not always aware of it, and I'm guilty of it too. But I, when I'm when the Holy Spirit brings it to my attention, I want to stop it and change it, right, and correct it, just like you. At morning light, they practice it, whatever they scheme, because it is in the power of their hand to do it. They covet fields and take them by violence. Naboth. Right? I mean, Naboth's vineyard story is just in the background of this whole thing. Also, houses and seize them illegally. They just come in and say, well, hey, I'm taking over. And they've got the magistrate, the police people, they weren't called police then, but they've got them bribed and paid off. And so you run to the magistrate, to the judge, and you say, look, he took my property. He said, yeah, well, he should have. He didn't do that. They come up with a false charge, put you in prison for a false charge. I mean, this is what happened when evil it goes unchecked. He'll, he'll say in verse 4, For this is an evil time. That's the title I put over the message for tonight in chapter 2 and 3. Now, beloved, we can be thankful. We don't live yet in as evil a time as he's describing here. But you know that could change almost overnight. That's exactly it, Steve. Good. That's Good. No, but it has happened in Houston. I know of places yeah. where the they did it. Happened, yeah. Yeah. It's it's not right. So they take the government, use them, confiscate, usually the small people. Then it turns to public use, like for libraries or roads and so forth. But then they get a thing and say, "Well, now we can use it to develop a big shopping center." Yep. So they're taking it from the little guy and giving it to some. And and who makes the money? Not exactly. the little guy. No. The developer. So basically, it's the same principle. Same principle. That's happening here today. And our government, I mean, they, there has been talk about, given the, the problem of the national debt and the fact that so many people are saving their money because they're concerned about the future of the, the country, that the government, you know, they could just go to the bank and confiscate it. In fact, we've got a representative here that, you know, Michael and I were talking about that last night, that the IRS has authority to, what are they, what's the word that starts with an L? Le- yeah, levy. Yeah, that's it, levy. But but they could come up with some false way. Just come in and say, yeah, well, we need that money for the government. Thank you, and just take it. Beloved, 
Well, I gotta be careful because I'm being taped. But you know the the, <laughs> the government, the government, the, the current government we're in. I I wouldn't blink an eye. If, I wouldn't be surprised that they would do. Now I think you know maybe in 2012, who knows what the Lord things may change and we may get a reprieve. But uh, they're already talking about you know trying to suspend the elections in 2012. Uh-huh. See. You'd say the audacity. Well, the audacity, you know, they haven't shown any fear of the Constitution or the people yet. So, uh, more importantly, no fear of God. Right. And more importantly, no fear of God. And that's what these people were like. So, we, you know, some of us that are from other other countries. I know some of the Russian people have suffered severely over the years, and 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 in other countries too, where justice doesn't always prevail but but he's talk what he's talking about here is that it is an evil time when injustice prevails he's going to talk about the judges are bribed the prophets speak lies instead of the truth the government leaders are greedy and covet other people's inheritance and it seems to and God lets it go unchecked to a point and then he brings in the Assyrians to stop it through the invasion. That's what what we read about in chapter 1, the Assyrian invasion. That's what God used to stop it. That's what Habakkuk says, right? In Habakkuk chapter 1 when he's frustrated over all this injustice going on. And of course, in his day, it's the Babylonian invasion. God says, oh yeah, I'm, I, I'm aware of it. Well, why are you letting it go on, Lord? Well, I'm going to take care of it. What are you going to do? He said, I'm going to bring in... A, of fierce people from the north, the Babylonians. And like, oh no, <laughs> he says, you can't do that. They're worse than we are. Oh, that's what, exactly what I'm going to do. You said Babylonians. Assyrians, Babylonians are, are synonymous? No, no. The Assyrian invasion would be what my, in Micah's day in the 8th century, the Babylonian okay. would be 100 years later in the 7th century, which, okay. which was when Jerusalem fell. Right. No, sure, sure. Good question. So, uh, so it's a serious time. One of the things you think about, just uh, I know I'm skipping around a little bit here, but go over to chapter seven, because in the in the second <clears throat> woe oracle, as I suggested to you, it begins in chapter six, verse nine, and there's not enough time tonight to 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 prove to you all the breaks where the breakdown. Well, I'll just try to work through it tomorrow night in the, the sessions that we have but I believe that there's a clear break in chapter 6 verse 9 and it goes all the way through chapter 7 verse 7 but it's also describing how bad it was during the time of the Assyrian invasion and and it gets to the point we'll look at verse in chapter 7 verse 3 that they successfully, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. Now, most people that do evil do evil with both hands. What's he emphasizing? He's emphasizing they're they're in it with everything they have. Is what he's saying, right? The prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe. And the great men utter his evil desire, so they scheme together to do evil. The governmental leaders are plotting evil against their own people. The best of them, even, is like a briar. A briar is a thorn. You know, it brings harm, not good. Even the best of them. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now shall be the perplexity. And here are the two verses, verse uh, 5 and 6. Do not trust in a friend. When it is in an evil time like this, he says, don't trust in a friend. Why? Because if you reveal a confidence to a friend, they'll turn you in. Now I believe what he's describing here it happened in the Assyrian invasion it will it repeated again 100 years later in the Babylonian invasion it repeated again in the Roman invasion that Josephus describes in great detail in 70 AD and it will repeat again during the great tribulation period all right so this is a a forerunning of what's going to happen don't trust in a friend do not put your confidence in a companion Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. Don't even trust your wife. It's going to get that bad. You say, no. You know, we tend to think in kind of a naive way. No, that, it could never get that bad. Beloved, it's that bad in places in the world right now. We're so sheltered. 
And we should be praying for our brethren in these kind of places. It's that bad. You know, your wife, you're, you're in the bosom, and you're, and you're laying in bed, and, and, you, and you talk, and, and so you reveal a confidence to her, you know, your wife, she, and then she goes and tells the authorities and turns you in. That happens right now in multiple countries. And of course, then she gets your property and gets another husband. Goes, she may already have somebody she's working on, and and all of that. That's you say, well, that's unjust. That's what he's describing. I'm going to start treating my wife better. That's right. That's right, brother. That's one of the lessons. But uh, for son dishonors father. Daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. It's bad enough when the, your enemies are in the church. <laughs> but if they're, they're in your own household, where do you turn? There's no place to hide from that, right? And I, I pray that none of us will see the day when that comes. But that will come, I believe, before the rapture. That we're going to experience a situation. It was like that in the first three centuries of the church. And I believe as we get closer to the second coming of Christ, it's going to get like it was in the beginning of the church. It's going to get like that. And and all we're going to have is each other to trust in, you know. And when the government's out there trying to patrol in the streets to find out where Christians are gathering to study the Bible, and and we find out that one of us, you know, rats on them on us and tells the, where we are, that's a hard thing to endure, right? And you find out it's your own wife or one of your own children. Our Lord quotes these these exact verses in Micah 7 in Matthew 10. You remember that great story on the that great discourse on mission? And He quotes these exact verses applying to the apostles. They experienced it in their day. And then the, the 144,000 during the tribulation, which they are a picture of. They were 12. 12,000 from each tribe would do it during the tribulation period. And they will experience that too. There'd be no. It'd be. I, I don't know how much you've read of the stories of, like, the Diary of Anne Frank, or or Corey Ten Boom in the Nazi days. That's the way it was then. And this is what was going on then. They were being turned in by their own friends and family members. Your own son, your own daughter, daughter-in-law against a man's enemy. Turned in for what now? For anything, anything that they anything they could label treason against the government. In that case, what he's talking about is for being a Christian. Now we we recognize too. We we mustn't get fearful about this because uh, we recognize too that our inheritance is not here. I mean, we have a spiritual inheritance, a spiritual gift, but it's an eternal one too. You know, it's not just for here, it's for eternity, but our, our, the bulk of our inheritance is in heaven, being reserved in heaven for us and protected by the Lord. So, you know, if, if this happens and, you know, and you say, well, that's a sad thing if your own beloved turn you in. I have experienced this from church members. It, it's not an easy thing to go from when you're people that you want that you have dinner with and that you have close companionship with, and then you find out later they turn against you, and which is satanic, of course. I mean, there's no logical explanation for it why somebody would do that. But I've found that that some people, Christians, that I've befriended and I tell things for prayer, that I, I can't do that anymore. In the circle of people that I share prayer requests with about personal things has gotten smaller and smaller. Why? Because you can't trust them. You can't trust them. And if that's happening already now, you can imagine what it's going to get like. We're not even. I wouldn't call this a time of persecution of the church yet. Certainly, there are injustices that are occurring, but not on a scale like what Mike is describing here. When these things come to pass, look up for your redemption for all time. Yeah, well, of course, that's to the tribulation saints, you know, there, and, and, and it's going to be a lot worse for them. But yeah, there's a. There's the obvious a, exhortation is that, yeah, don't be, be aware. That's right. And don't, don't be clinging to things it's here. That's right. That's right, that's right sister. Uh, they're homeschooling their children and they just grab the children 
Think about that, you with the little children. That's that's what I'm, we were talking about that last night. Yeah. I mean, they won't let them homeschool. And that could happen in this country. They want to do that. There's an element that wants to. Yeah, I know. Of course, you got the president of a leading country in the Middle East saying that none of that was really occurred. And he just addressed the UN and look at all the people who sat and listened to him. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, it's interesting times we live in. Uh, this is a test of loyalty and faith, too, isn't it, beloved? As a matter of housekeeping, brother, would you please explain when you're talking about uh, leave oracle and woe oracle, what you mean by the word oracle itself? Are you referring okay. to a judgment or... Uh, Good question. Uh, uh, just, just for our own. It would be edification. the the simplest way to describe it would be like a, a sermon or a message. In other words, the it's a prophetic oracle. When the prophet spoke right. a message or a sermon, it was it was considered an oracle. Uh, it it's, it comes from the the old you know Peter talked about the uh, being the oracles of God, stewards of the oracles of God. So it's a biblical word. And Is there an example for how pagans might use that term oracle? Because I think sometimes we might, you know, think of oracle as being some uh, uh, oh, old witch. Okay, in a, in, in I didn't a, even thought of that. In a hovel somewhere, and people go. And well, Saul actually did went to this went uh, to and, the witch. That was yeah. essentially an oracle, if you will. Uh, uh, paganistic terminology was it was an oracle because she was she was to foretell or to give yeah. some information to Saul. Saul speaking as a, as a mouthpiece for God, so to speak. Good, but, good clarification. But in this yeah. in this regard, we're not we're not talking mm. about that. I was just hoping maybe we could. Maybe That's good. No, it's classification. Right. It's just a way to classify uh, the different messages that we see in the prophetic books. In this case, in Micah, right? And and we see it's a style. Of message, and it's it's interesting whether it was whatever prophet it was Isaiah, Hosea, Malachi, even that we see that that the Holy Spirit uses these same really these four main styles of messages that He gave. Uh, it's kind of interesting that, and they do I think parallel the four categories of Second Timothy three sixteen as we talked about on the Lord's Day, right? So the Reeve Oracle, the Woe Oracle, the Call of Repentance, the Restoration Oracle, we see these are just styles of sermons that the, that the Lord gave through His prophet to His people to accomplish certain things, you know, whether it's to awaken them or to uh, warn them or to say that, hey, this, the judgment is coming. But, you know, in judgment, remember mercy, right? The Restoration Oracle you know, gives hope to the remnant because the remnant's going through that time of difficulty with, with the ones that deserve it, right? And so that's where the restoration oracle. We'll look, we'll see those in chapter uh, four and five, you know, right in the middle of the book. So, good question. Yeah, I, I didn't even, yeah, because you got. We don't see that. I don't see that uh, term oracle used in the evil sense so much today. But it did. It was used in in times past. I don't know if any of y'all were thinking that. So I'm glad. Uh, Tim brought that up. No, not this is not in the sense of the way the evil, the pagan world would use it as a witch, or you know there was there was a, in Greek right there was some sort of oracle they call them the oracle or something. In, Delphi. Yeah, oracle of Delphi. That's what I'm thinking. Corinth and Acro Corinth. So uh, that's right. Yeah. So then in that case, they were using oracle. They would say they were getting a message from God. But of course, it was a message from the devil for them. The oracles that we're talking about is a message from God, but it had to be through a true prophet. Through a prophet moved to speak by God. These are yeah. actually God's words. That's right. Thus saith the Lord, an oracle. That's right. The Lord, That's right? right. And they were, in fact, oracles, if you will, the, the, the means through which God was communicating to his people. You also mentioned on the platform the other day, chiasm. Yeah. as a literary style uh, would you explain a little bit about that so that we might be able to pick it out ourselves as we're reading say, ah, this is a chiasm or a chiastic letter or yeah yeah <clears throat> I probably because uh, it won't occur in the section we're looking at tonight I'll, I'll oh. develop it tomorrow night because it'll be more clear in the section we're looking at tomorrow night but I <clears throat> I've mentioned it before and I diagrammed it in in the uh, minor prophets booklets that we did back in 2005 so that's why I didn't 
rehearse it. I don't know. I don't think you were maybe down here in 2005. So you maybe not have gotten one. So that's why I didn't. But it's the idea that that uh, say it, it would have to be an odd number of clauses or statements or subject ideas that are presented, right? So let's say there's five of them. In a chiasm, but the, it's a literary technique that the Lord uses where the first one, we'll call it A, all right, lines up with the fifth one, E. In other words, the subject matter are the same, which also forms a literary device called inclusio, which brackets the section, right? And then the second one lines up with the fourth one, and that leaves the third one in the middle, kind of like uh, like a spearhead, because you can line them up like this, and so that means, and in the middle one is the one that is where the emphasis is occurring. So it's a literary device. I mean. To me, it's just ingenious of the Lord to do this, to help us to see when he's wanting to emphasize something, he even uses the structure, the literary structure of the passage to emphasize what, he, what the main point is. You're saying that Micah is set up that way, the whole... I think the whole book is whole book. chiastic, but, uh, but the certain sections of it are too. Uh, in chapter 4 and 5 are chiastic and the middle of the chiasm is right there in the section on Bethlehem Ephrathah you know 5, 2 through 5 but we'll look at that I'll, I'll identify it more than I know I want you to ask those questions I appreciate that because uh, some of the people here probably it's, weren't it's, here at that time right. it's helpful to understand that because uh, I don't know without the feedback I don't know where the, whether even all that it's a way in which also, also people are able to, to look at manuscripts uh, and, and to, to really be able to note that they are yeah the Word of God simply by the literary style that's used in the perfect placement of the subject. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah and so anyways. And I'll, uh, I see Bob's got a little whiteboard over here. If you've got a marker later on when we break for food, I'll diagram that out if you didn't picture it in your mind. I don't, were you able to follow me, Andres, when how I was describing that? I'll, I'll try to show it because, like Tim said, you, you, you'll be able to, with practice, be able to see these things for yourself. Not that we're necessarily looking for them is kind of a it's not a game you know or anything like that but it becomes as it comes you know you have to be in the word a lot to be able to see them but once as we're spending more and more time in the word and growing as Christians we begin to see them and for me when I see them it gives me great delight now I, I get help too because <laughs> some of the the commentaries you know those brethren see them Praise the Lord. And, and they can help. One of the things, but one of the things is with anything, right? Uh, some brethren see chiasms where they're not there, right? So we don't want to force them. Like, dear brother, um, the Companion Bible, what's his name? The great genius. No, uh, but he's in the assembly. Oh, what's his name? Nobody has a Companion Bible? Ah, I can't remember. No, it'd be, it'd be just after Darby. He wrote some hymns too. Um, well, maybe come to me later. It's not fresh in my mind. But but he he said he he's got a the companion Bible that it's a valuable tool. He he did a, a lot of detail on uh, on on the is the, the scripture and the notes on the scripture detailed notes. And the man was a genius. I mean, just uh, but he. He got carried away with. He saw chiasm everywhere, and there's and he diagrams them on there, and they're they're interesting. But I think he sees them where they're not there too. So we have to be careful. For a recent yeah, in the early 1900s. You, you know what I'm talking about? Well, it'd be you know in his day. Yeah, Schofield would be. No. Oh, what's his name? Uh, I'm thinking it starts with a B, right? No. Well, he was in the assembly, I, I but anyway. <laughs> so coming back to chapter two, uh, well, yeah, uh, we'll just close out the first five verses. I didn't get very far, did I? Uh, verse three. Therefore, thus says the Lord: Behold, against this family I am devising disaster. That's the Assyrian invasion of chapter 1. I'm devising this. See, the world says that the Assyrians devised that disaster. God says, I devised it against my people and against the nations as a way of calling to account from which you cannot remove your necks nor shall you 
uh, walk haughtily or in pride, for this is an evil time. In that day one shall take up a proverb against you and a lament with a bitter lamentation, saying, We are utterly destroyed. He has changed the heritage or the inheritance of my people, how he has removed it from me. In other words, this is talionic justice, right? They were stealing the inheritance of their neighbors. So he says, fine, I'm going to take your inheritance and give it to the Assyrians and then deport you out of your inheritance. See, So in, in the measure that you did, I'm going to measure it back to you only with a, a much greater effect. To our turncoat, he has divided our fields. Therefore, you will have no one to determine the boundaries by lot. See, talking about how the, the inheritance was divided under Joshua in the assembly of the Lord. Now beginning in verse 6, and, and I've used up the time, but beginning in verse 6, just to give you an overview of what follows, then 6 through the end of the chapter, chapter 2, through verse 13, is a pronouncement, well I mean down through verse uh, 11, is a pronouncement against the prophets, alright? The false prophets. Because the false prophets, and we see this happening in Ahab's house, right? And in the, in the historical books, how Ahab used false prophets to guide him into doing evil things. And he said, well, look, we checked with God. We checked. I went to the prophets and they said, yes, go do it, right? And Micaiah was the only one who stood against him. He was one lone prophet that stood against him in the case of that particular event. Elijah did too. And, and so these... These false prophets were helping to energize the evil of the judges and the civil rulers, the princes, the kings. And that combination, it continued to be a problem. All right, bringing that forward, we said verses 1 through 5 in chapter 2, we would apply primarily, since this was to the leaders, that would be primarily to the elders in the assembly. Make sure that the saints are getting opportunity to exercise gift, to grow in their gift, to identify their gift, and then grow in it, right? That's part of, and don't steal their inheritance. Don't take away, deprive them of their spiritual gift or their the use of their gift, right? Now here, this would be to what area? If we're talking about the false prophets, Peter says in Second Peter 2, as there were false prophets among them, there will be... False teachers among you. So here it would be in the sense of the teaching of the word. Guard the platform. Don't I don't the Bible doesn't teach every man ministry. He doesn't teach that just anybody who wants to walk up there can do that. The platform's to be guarded. Why? Because it's the word of God, see. And if someone doesn't have time to prepare properly for the Lord's people, then they shouldn't be up there because the Lord's people are worthy of that, right? And they could, they could mislead them even without realizing it because they haven't had time to actually study out the passage for themselves and could teach error. So false teachers, now of course today is not just in the assembly because we have the technology of radio and television and the internet and many of our people, especially young people, are listening to messages on the internet from people from who knows who they are. Right, and 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 then they're and then they're espousing them, and uh, and that's happening. I mean, I, I've heard young people giving that. I thought, where in the world did they get that? They didn't get it in the assembly, I know. So they got it listening to some messages on on the internet. See, and it and it's and and Satan is using that as a way to to bring evil and false thinking and misrepresentation of the Bible amongst his people, see? He's relentless. He doesn't give up, does he? So Chris, Chris and I were talking last night, technology can be used for good or for evil, and so we don't just say that all the technology is bad, but the use of it, the stewardship of the technology, we want to be careful about it. It's really hard with the Internet because it's, it's so hard to police it. You know, in other words, you could, if you're in your house when you're... When the teenagers are there looking at it, you can you can police it, but you can't. They go to their neighbor's house, you can't follow them, and you don't know what they're looking at. Then if they're at school in the library, you're at work or wherever, you you don't know what they're looking at, and so it's really. And Satan, of course, knows that, and that's the danger of it. 
So there are certain principles there, and, and I've used up the time, so we'll, we'll uh, come to those another time. The great restoration promise in verses 12 and 13 at the end of chapter 2, and maybe I'll uh, spend some time in that tomorrow night since I'm going to be looking at chapter 4 and 5, which is also messianic. But that's a messianic promise there in, at the end. So the Lord slips in these encouragements about Messiah in the midst of the discipline, see, which is a kind thing for a nurturing father to do, right? To, to give us warning and to do it in a solemn and serious way so that we get it that this is serious, right? And that's why the Lord does that. I mean, when I looked at my dad and he wanted to, to check me on something, I looked at his face, are you serious? Oh, yeah, he's serious. And that's why the Lord uses that. He knows how He made us. But at the same time, He doesn't want to discourage us when He corrects us. And so He slips in, especially for the remnant, right? The true believers in the midst of Israel with all the unbelievers that were there. He slips in, yeah, but there's one coming. Oh, wait till He comes, the true ruler. He's going to shepherd you. Not going to be like your rulers that you suffered under, He said. He's going to be a true shepherd. He's going to shepherd you. It's great encouragement to Him in the midst of the suffering. Well, so we can talk some more about it, you know, a little bit uh, as we're having some food maybe, but thanks all of you for coming. And I hope, you know, in, in just a few brief sessions, it's hard to really get a, get a hold of a, a book like Micah, but hopefully whet some appetite for, for further appreciation of it. But I think it's a really powerful... It's seven chapters, so it's not like Isaiah, you know, 66. Man, I mean, it's just, it's just hard to get my mind around 66 chapters. I'm, I'm working on that. I'm, I've not preached a real series in Isaiah because I, I don't feel like I'm ready to do it yet, but I'd like to. I mean, I've done portions of it, but now I want to do the whole thing. But uh, you've you got to really make sure when you're dealing with that. That confession is safe with us, though, brother. We're not going to tell you. <laughs> that one's probably out anyway. Everybody knows. <laughs> but I appreciate that. Okay, well, maybe either you or ask someone to close in prayer and, and ask the Lord's blessing on the food, brother. We appreciate you letting us be in, our, in your home. It's a privilege. Okay. Our Father, we are grateful for this privilege to gather this evening freely without fear of persecution or opposition, at least at the present. And we just uh, want to take serious these uh, matters that we have considered tonight and, and um, just uh, serve Thee acceptably with reverence and godly fear, mm. uh, looking forward to the day when the Lord Jesus comes and takes us home. We do thank you now for the hospitality of the Andersons and mm. uh, the food we're about to receive and bless our time uh, as we fellowship together and we offer thanks for the food. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.